Hello, club members. I am Kate. And I'm Emma. <laughs> Emma's but a not really. different. <laughs> I'm here in Philadelphia with my good friend Ariana. She's the reason that we had to cover ectoplasm yes. and also the reason we have to cover what we're covering today. Ariana, what are we covering today? Oh, we're covering, um, it's called the Uncanny Valley. It's Ooh, one of my favorites. Uncanny Valley. We talked about this a little bit in the Cats episode, so if you're ready um, to be hurt, go listen to our Cats episode. The oh, the Cats episode. Yes, oh, which is very Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Um, so for those who are unfamiliar with Uncanny Valley, what is it? I don't know. You tell me. Oh, my God. Did you know? <laughs> I told you I have four things to say. Oh, my God. All right. Well, let us let me get us started. <laughs> Before we um, move on, uh, th- welcome to the Nightlight Horror Movie Club. If you're new, uh, if you've been here before, welcome back. This is one of our mini episodes where we talk about whatever we want, however we want, and whatever Ariana tells us to talk about. So yes. that is that is why we're talking about Uncanny Valley. Um, <laughs> if you've never heard of Uncanny Valley... Um, Have you seen The Polar Express? Yes. You know that feeling of unease you get when you watch The Polar Express and you see Tom Hanks? Definitely. Yeah, so that's the uncanny valley. Oh, shit. I'm going to just move you closer to the mic. (laughs) I want you to physically moving me closer to the mic. We're trying to share one mic. mic, So if the audio is not great, it's because um, we both have scoliosis and we are trying (laughs) our fucking best. Also, I'm way too tall for this shit. Yeah, this is a five foot tall woman. Five foot tall. I'm talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) And an eight foot tall woman. There it is. Crouched over a microphone. In Philadelphia for you. In the streets of Philly. In the streets of Philly. We're outside of a CVS. People are walking by. No one cares because it's Philly. Because it's Philly. (laughs) But yeah, that's Polar Express is a great example, probably the most popular example of Uncanny Valley. Um, If you still don't know what I'm talking about because I haven't given a good explanation yet, here we go. So the Uncanny Valley is... So whenever you see like a robot and it's just a little robot, like a little robotic arm, that's not that cute and you, you don't feel any sort of emotional way about it. Now, imagine Wally. That's pretty cute because he's got little eyeballs and little arms and he's looking a little more human and that's super cute. And you're like, oh, I'm into it. And then you see like a gigantic animatronic that like it bl- can't blink all the way, but like looks into your soul. Like blinks a little too much. A little too much and not all the way. <laughs> Smiles on one side of its face. So that is the uncanny valley where we're like, oh, it's getting more and more human. It's getting more and more cute. We're able to relate to it. And then there is a very sharp and predictable decline. So do you know a little bit, Ariana, about like who came up with that term and like where that comes from? No, I don't. Tell me. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay, so there was this guy. He was a Japanese roboticist. His name was Masahari. Nope. His name was Masahiro Mori. (laughs) And this was back in, like, the 70s. So we didn't have, like, the kind of AI and robots that we have today. But he made a a very... (laughs) very smart and very accurate prediction, and he wrote this big essay that basically the more human a robot will become, the more adorable it will become, the more people can relate to it, um, until it does not, until it super, super doesn't, and that's where that we get that uncanny valley, that sharp decline. If you're imagining like a bar chart, there's like a big, it's like cute, 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 super, super not cute, and the reasons um, 
for that are kind of argued. So like, Ariana, do you like have any experience with something that you saw that you were like, that you felt very uncanny valley about? Um, let me think. <laughs> I mean, definitely the cockroaches in cats were oh, devastating and the stuff of haunt mares. Haunt mares. <laughs> yes. That is definitely haunt mare juice for sure. <laughs> what else? Um, there's a, if there's a lot, like a lot of dolls that you'll see, yeah. like, um, like baby be poop or baby be mine. You know, you know the dolls What's I'm talking about. poop? I've never heard of that. That's what, well, it's probably not what it's called, but it's like a, <laughs> it's these babies that they're marketing to children that are getting increasingly more humanoid, but they're not human. Oh, are those the ones that shit? Yes. For real? Yes. Oh. Damn. I had one of those. Did you not have one of those? Absolutely not. Oh, I had one. Have you met me? <laughs> Well, I didn't mean now. <laughs> I don't why I just don't understand why you're giving children babies that shit. People shit, Ariana. <laughs> why do I need to be a mother when I'm a 2-year-old? This this is for a different podcast. <laughs> I agree, but that's not the point. The point is that those babies were very disturbing because they look almost human but they're just not quite there. Now, now we need to get to the data of it. So the data is really conflicting because, again, this uncanny valley hypothesis is just that. It was just a hypothesis from the 70s. Um, but a lot of people feel like, is it a hypothesis? Because it's super true. Like, it's super real. Like, you get that feeling in the same way that you see, like, a mask that's, like, almost human and not quite right or video games where the animation is, like, so good that it's bad, so good that it's scary <laughs> because it doesn't look quite the way it should. So, I, in my, like, whenever I he- read about the uncanny valley, I'm like, oh, yes, that explains very simply like all of my feelings I have for different animations and dolls and things like that. How does he predict this in the 70s? Because he is much smarter than us. What was was in the 70s that was good enough to... Nothing. Nothing was good enough for that. Like like, they had like animatronics, you know what I mean? Yeah. They had very, very... But nothing that's like lifelike enough in the 70s. No, I agree. It was a pre- it was a prediction and a hypothesis, and in in my opinion, a very a very accurate one. But the data isn't all there. I know that Ariana looked up a little bit about the data. Yeah, I mean, it's not really data, but yeah, it's like a bunch <laughs> of <laughs> random facts that I just got into a wormhole when we were researching. I want to hear all about them. Oh God. Okay. Well, I'll start with the first part of the wormhole, which is I was wondering what specifically in your brain causes you to have these feelings. Um, and of course, oxytocin came up, which, oh, sure. yeah, which is a big part of like facial recognition and like your feelings of like familiarity with someone and someone, um, at the university of, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm going to sound really, here, read it for me. I really thought, because one of your notes says Princeton, and I was like, Ariana? (laughs) The the Puget Sound? Puget Sound, yeah. It's University of Puget Sound. I legit thought you couldn't say Princeton. (laughs) I mean, I can say Princeton. Okay, because I told you how to. You got me. (laughs) Okay, at the University of Puget Sound. Yes, basically they added oxytocin, um, via nasal spray. Oh, so I would love to get my hands on that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, right? That sounds just like snort, generally helpful. Snort some love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, I don't like you. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. I love you You're now. You're like my family now. Yeah. 
Basically, it's like nasal spray with oxytocin versus nasal spray that was placebo. And then they would show people these faces that were either like more cartoonish and then like, you know, more and more percent like a person's real face. And they were predicting that the oxytocin would help them feel less eerie about it. But it turns out that it doesn't actually make a difference at all, which is very weird to me. Oh. Yeah. But they did find that it didn't change their feelings of eeriness. It didn't make them like those faces more, but it actually helped them make their decisions faster, which kind of makes sense to me because it's like, you know, evolutionary basis where it's like, you know, if you have more oxytocin, you're more likely to recognize people that are closer to your family and you know, not people that are not closer to your family. Oh, okay. I didn't think of, I never thought of oxytocin as in like the opposite effect. Yeah. Where it's like, I don't love you. Yeah. So like you could take like oxytocin nasal spray, like on a date per se and be like, it'll help you make your decision. Yeah. I decided no. That's a good idea. The no spray tells me I don't love Wait, you. Wait, are we doing this? I think we're doing this. <laughs> Please follow the link below for our Kickstarter for date spray. No, nope, that, that sounds, sounds bad. Really bad. That sounds really bad. Oh, that's man. interesting. Yeah. yeah, I would have figured that there would be some way to trick your brain into accepting like AI, right. like right. Ro- robotics. Yeah, yeah. Well, but there no. isn't now. At least your not yet. Is smart enough to be like no. Yeah. So that's that's a big thing. Is like it's it's our brain. So our brain is like that is wrong. You need to stay away from that. And that's why you get these feelings of repulsiveness like it's like you're you're again it's like cute 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 absolutely repulsed get it away from me and I'll, I'll try to include some like pictures in, in, in the in the um, link below so that you guys can see some of the examples that I'm talking about um, but again the the why why do we feel like that like why is it that whenever something's like almost human it's ter- it's terrifying. And I can I know that that's one of my favorite parts or I shouldn't say favorite. Most effective horror for me is that kind of I don't want to call it body horror, but like face horror where <laughs> it's like okay, stay with me. There is a there is an episode of Buffy. <laughs> there is an episode of Buffy where someone is revealed to be a demon and so she smiles and it's just a normal smile but then the smile gets bigger and bigger and Ew, bigger and I bigger hate it. right and so my brain i i distinctly remember that and that still to this day is like really really scary horror to me yeah. because in in its part like it's just my lizard brain being like that is not normal fight or flight go don't like it oh my god yeah lizard brain doesn't like it no. that reminds me of the scene in insidious where there is like this family, like the ghost family that's like in the house. And then there's like the teenage girl who like shoots the family and then everyone looks at her and she has yes. like this giant ass smile on her face. And you're yes. like, oh my God. Exactly. <laughs> it's devastating part, but definitely one of my favorite parts of the movie. A hundred percent. Cause it's effective horror. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same reason, or at least I feel like I can equate it to like clowns and like people who have face paint on. Oh, yeah. um, Cause it's like your face is not, what my brain is is expecting your face to be as if you're going to be a human. Yeah. But like why does my lizard brain hate that so much? It's it's debated. So a lot of people have tried to study this. Hold on. I need uh, need to get my oxytocin spray. <laughs> <laughs> that honestly sounds like a great idea though. 
So like I said, this all started from this guy, Masahiro Mori, in 1970. Um, but his essay was in, in Japanese, so like the research was pretty much um, just staying in Japan, and the robotics interest was staying in Japan. But back in 2005, his essays were translated into English, and so that's when more and more psychologists the world over started to study this phenomenon, this hypothesis of the uncanny valley. So um, I know there's there's a couple studies that Ariana has looked into, and I have some as well, but they're very conflicting. Are yours as conflicting as mine are? Like the like the results? No, but I everywhere that I read was like, oh, there's conflicting evidence about this, and so I totally get what you're thinking. But mine are more kind of fringe, you know, fringe info. It's not really. Oh, yeah. So tell me what you found. Okay, cool. So um, a lot of my stuff was around like the the mid. 2000. So in 2005, I'm sorry, in 2006, because his essay was translated in 2005, so they wasted no time. In 2006, they did um, a, a pretty decent study. It was 45 people, and they had um, they didn't really have robotics. They had a series of morphed images going from more mechanical to more lifelike and a lot of in-between. And um, they would ask people, you know, to, to rate their likability of these series of like different images, if that makes sense. And it, it actually kind of predictably supported this uncanny valley hypothesis. Um, but whenever they did it with actual robots, it didn't work as well, if that makes sense. So like it, like that, un they were able to demonstrate the uncanny valley pretty repeatably and predictably whenever they use these morphed images. So like, um, think like animation almost, but then whenever they did it with robotics, they couldn't, in this study, they couldn't demonstrate it as predictably. So that would lead me to think like the same reason why whenever I watch like cutscenes from video games that are like, ugh, I don't like this cutscene because their faces are moving weird. Like I, I have like felt the uncanny valley a lot in animation and, and that's what this study kind of agreed with was like, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to hit it with drawings and images versus like true robotics that makes sense interesting it, it does make sense but then it, it, the opposite was shown in another study in Classic like 20 <laughs> exactly and, and then in 2016 <laughs> they did they did a whole other study with about the same amount of people it was 42 people and 380 actual robot faces and they did demonstrate that uncanny valley so again the scientific jury is like still out on if the uncanny valley quote unquote exists like from a scientific standpoint. But I mean, for me, from an emotional standpoint, it definitely exists. Yeah. But, and for a lot of people, it's like, it definitely is emotionally there, but the science is still out. I don't know. Do you think a big part of like a robot causing you to be anxious is rooted in the fact that a robot is like a real life thing that could potentially cause you harm versus looking at a picture or an image that's like animated? Yeah, so that that's a that's a, one of the big hypotheses around it is that we're expecting them to like we we see it as something that could be human but the way it acts is not human. So that's like the let me see if I can find it. Oh yeah, the the violation of expectations hypothesis, which is that you see these faces and we think that they're going to behave in a human-like way and then they don't because they're robots. Versus animation, they behave very, you know, human-like yeah. because they can make them do that. Yeah. So that supports the idea that it would be more predictable with robotics. Yeah. But again, that's one of several hypotheses. I have a ton of them. Do you want to hear some of them? Yeah. Okay. So there's one that um, 
I don't quite understand. So this, or like, I, I just don't agree with it. So it's oh, okay. the pathogen avoidance hypothesis. And this is the hypothesis that we don't like it. We don't like this, these types of faces and images because um, our brains are doing that on purpose to help keep us away from people who could be carrying infectious disease. And yeah. that just, I don't know if that sits as well with me. Because I've never seen a sick person and been like, your face looks weird. In, in inhuman. Well, it's your lizard brain. But my lizard brain doesn't do that very much. I feel like out of all of the hypotheses I found, I agree with this one the most. Interesting. Yeah. Because I didn't agree with this one very wow. much. Interesting. Huh. Well, once you hear the rest of my research, you'll understand. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. Well, this is the one that I agreed with the most. This was the mortality um, salience really? hypothesis. Yes. Huh. So this was... Um, like mortality salience and also in more specifically like terror management theory, which again, great name of a theory. Um, <laughs> I'm like, tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> so this is the awareness that death is inevitable and this awareness of death causes this existential anxiety. Oh yeah, this God. is the part of the episode that gets weird. All right. Um, if you don't like existential crises, just like fast forward about two minutes. <laughs> All right, now that all the weirdos are still here, let's continue. <laughs> let's continue. Um, so terror management theory. This is like we have mort- mortality salience, and um, that engages conflict that humans have to face, like we are all going to die, and we have this instinct to avoid death, this very important evolutionary instinct to avoid death. But we also have this awareness that avoiding death is ultimately futile, so we're in this constant oh state. I, I'm telling you. <laughs> so we're in this constant state of either avoiding death or distracting ourselves from thinking about death. So the long and short of terror management theory is that almost all human activity is driven by the fear of death. So, but don't you have to identify like this external thing that's creeping you out as a dead thing first? And doesn't that go against kind of the first idea even? Well, so that's a completely different hypothesis. Okay. Like these are all conflicting hypotheses. Okay. So this is like kind of like hypothesis B, for example. So, so in there, I will say a lot of people, whenever they, whenever they're interviewed in, in these studies, it's like, why don't you like this robot that looks a little bit too much like a face. And again and again, what pops up is um, it looks like a corpse, like, cause it's like almost a face, but it's not quite right. Cause if you've ever seen like a corpse, like they're just, it's not a person, it's not a human face. Like there's something just not quite right about it. And so whenever people are seeing these robots or animations that are just not quite right, people are being triggered to think about corpses or it makes them think about corpses and then that makes them think about their own mortality and then we have like this existential spiral. So basically that's that theory. And honestly, that's the one that I get the most. Wow. I know. I don't feel like you'll feel the same way once you hear what I researched and like really like the hard science behind things. Tell me. (laughs) Tell me why I need to be afraid. Okay. Um, So first of all, like my biggest thing is, you know, I, I understand that, you know, oh, like let's be concerned that, you know, we're going to die someday, whatever. I think that this is more rooted in like chemicals in your brain, like evolutionary, like you evolve to recognize people that are more similar to you because that's how you survive, you know, Mm -hmm. our lizard brain acts that way. And they, you know, Princeton, this is the Princeton one, Kate. It's pronounced Princeton. Princeton (laughs) University did a study with 
um, monkeys where they show them images of other monkeys that are less than perfect um, representations, and then they track to see how long you know they look at each one. So basically, they they do find that uh, monkeys have like you know, normal, um, responses. Like I think they said they, um, they will like smack their lips and like make cute cooing noises when they engage with each other. And they'll do that for monkeys that look more like a real monkey. But then there is this valley where they become frightened and don't look at close to real images. So basically the idea is that, you know, monkeys have this as well. So it's like an evolutionary, thing and it's you know are monkeys having an existential crisis I maybe I don't think they are maybe they are <laughs> Who's to, maybe what? they are I don't know man. oh my god I put put the monkeys on Zoloft they're <laughs> having a hard time Zoloft for everybody yes <laughs> no there's no way there's so no way. did they like study the actual like chemical processes behind it um not really because I feel like it's so hard to do it's so hard to mix like psychology and like neurology at the same time so like I don't really know like what the pathway is or whatever but I mean we have other evidence like specifically this other study I looked at was basically you know obviously we know this is evolutionary so you know at what point in human development do we see you know this change from you know you recognizing everything that is you know more familiar to you. And that is something that will help you survive. Um, and really I ended up looking this one up specifically because I was finding a lot of information about like cartoon versus robot, um, fear, I guess. And then I was thinking, Hmm, I wonder if it's different for children because they like watch cartoons more. Um, and so I was like, maybe they will be less creeped out by like cartoon faces. Um, so that's how I got into this freaking wormhole. But anyway, I'm there. Basically I found a study where the British psychological society looks into like what age do babies develop their ability to have an aversion for this uncanny valley oh these poor babies i know i know are you scared yet baby <laughs> they're just like showing how about now yes. that sounds like an ideal job um <laughs> <laughs> i i don't i, I don't have get these baby haters <laughs> Like, why? So, why did you want to be on this study? Man, I just really fucking hate babies. Man, want to make them cry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they are kind of annoying. <laughs> did you do this study? Yeah. You know what? I did. I just want to scare a bunch of six months old. Six, six months month old. old. <laughs> I love it. No. Okay. So, basically, um, they found that it's between six months and a year, um, where That's babies figured out. Yeah. So they'll show, you know, this to six month olds and they won't have any, you know, more or less affinity for the uncanny faces. But once they reach 12 months, they will like prefer to stare at the human faces and the significantly less similar faces. And then there's this valley where they will choose to not look at things long, you know, if they're creeping them out. So basically they creeped out a bunch of 12 month olds and found that, you know, at that age or between six and 12 months, um, you know, it's interesting because that's also the age that they found, um, babies to have like a decreased ability to distinguish faces from other species and even other races. Okay. So basically (laughs) there's this thing called, um, perceptual narrowing. And it's this idea that the more you look at certain things, the easier it is to recognize them. Um, So, you know, babies that are younger can recognize faces of other races better than older babies, actually, which means that, like, you know, if you as a like me as a Hispanic baby, 
was currently like me as a six month old Hispanic baby was, you know, more open to other faces that don't look like my parents' faces. Uh And like, once you reach a year old, you see your parents' faces and your family's same race faces so much that you actually become very good at recognizing just those people's race. And Mm -hmm. then you become less able to recognize other people's faces at that year. Isn't that weird? Damn. I know. We're making racist babies. Yeah, I know. Oh my God. So the bottom line is expose your six month olds to a lot of different types of faces. Holy sh- Well, it's just like, um, so Ariana is also a veterinarian. Um, and this sounds a lot like the socialization period and like puppies and it's kittens. exactly what it is. Yeah. So, oh my so God. Th- there's, um, there is like a, a very narrow window for puppies and kittens where it is like the ideal time. Their brains are little sponges and you want to be exposing them to all sorts of different things, like different sounds, you know, car rides, the lawnmower, um, things that you don't want them to be afraid of. But that also includes people of different races. Yeah. Like for anyone who's out there who like adopted a dog and, uh, they're racist, this is why (laughs) this is why this is this is why because they're just like that's not they're not used to seeing that they've only been around people with specific types of faces and then they see something new and like that's different bork 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 and embarrasses you greatly when you're at the brewery oh no just saying so this i'm just seeing a lot of similarities it's crazy yeah i didn't even put that together (laughs) yeah it's messed up that is really messed up but socialize your babies socialize Socialize your your babies and your puppies and and your your kittens kittens. (laughs) your kittens why are we like making kittens (laughs) making it a kitten (laughs) like what is your kitten gonna do stop kittens from being racist Hashtag stop racist kittens. <laughs> I've had it up to here with your racist doodles. <laughs> I have had it. Do you know how they did this study? Like what they showed the babies? Um, uh, Let's see. I think that it's mostly like the same way they tested everyone else in all these other studies where like they had imi- different types of images. Yeah. They had adult faces that were you know, very similar to people and then adult faces that were like very far away from real people. (laughs) It just makes me, so I know, so they figure it out when they're like six months, but I'm just imagining like these like scientists going in to like to pick up these babies, like wearing like a gorilla mask or something. And the babies are like, okay. Yeah. And then they turn six months and like, wait, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Why is this clown feeding me? Jesus. I mean, it's crazy how like easy you can mold the minds of children. Yes. Yeah. Start young. Start young. Start young. Uh-huh. And um I guess that's where we're going to end this. <laughs> Wait, I have one more thing to say. <laughs> Please. Is it about racism? No, it's Damn it. it's actually really cool. Um unlike racism. It's not yeah. <laughs> it's it's actually really interesting. So then I got down another um wormhole where I they did like this specific study with autistic children. Oh, interesting. And they're like, do you think these kids will be more or less likely to have a similar version to uncanny faces? Because there's like this theory that, you know, autistic children will have reduced sensitivity to uh-huh. facial expression and recognizing facial, you know, facial features. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Do you think that they would be better at it, worse at it, the same as like, you know, regular like kids that are developing normally? Better? No. Really? Yeah. It's actually worse. It's worse? Yeah, unfortunately. But I mean, yeah, basically it's like, it just goes to show that like a big part of this is 
I feel like a big part of this is evolution. Yeah. And when there's like a disconnect between recognizing facial features or something causing that, they're less likely to care. So like they yeah. will look at all faces the same amount of time and have no uneasiness doing so. Interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh-huh. So like there's, I know I've talked about a bunch of different hypotheses, um, which aren't as in-depth as like the, the studies that you're talking about. They're just very basic hypotheses. But there's one that is just the broadest one of them all. It's the most basic one. It is called the categorical uncertainty hypothesis. And that is just our brains are not programmed to process that in-between shit. Like mm. we're, we, we've, we see this, we see that, and then whenever it's in-between, our brain's not ready for it and it doesn't know what to where to put it. But why does our brain recognize the even less, you know canny faces like why are we Mm -hmm. recognizing those then i'm confused because so like we know what faces look like yeah we know what cartoons look like but why do we know what cartoons look like 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 why does our brain feel like that's fine that's a deeper question you know well because it's not like what we're seeing like our, our brain isn't trying to put it in a category we're like that's not real this is real Okay, okay. Like we can say that isn't, tr- oh, that is not true. Sure. This is true. Okay. And then we present something that's more on the not true side. And we're like, yeah, I get it. That's not true. Right. And then you like a dragon, an animated dragon. We're like, You're that's like, not, not true. Right. Like okay. my brain gets that that's not trying to be a human. But then we see something that's too close to human, but not quite there. And our brain isn't sure where to put it or how to react to it. So it's instinct. Again, evolution is fight or flight. That's scary. Get away from that thing. Yeah. So now that you've heard these other kind of things that are more based in science and less in your (laughs) existential crises, do you still feel like this comes from a existential situation or do you feel like it's more just like chemicals in your brain? I think it's multifaceted. I think it's both. I think that if we were monkeys, I think it would be much easier to say that we are, that it's very chemical and it's just like a little bit more black and white just because the monkeys are not as socially and emotionally developed as we are. Yeah. They're, they're highly developed, but not anywhere near to where we are. Yeah. They don't have the neuroses that we do over things. That's true. Versus people Absolutely. Whenever we think about death or anything triggers that part of our brain that's thinking about death, it can really set us off Hmm. because we're more aware of it than a monkey is. Yeah. So I think it's multifaceted. I think it's both. Huh. Yeah, I agree. Now that you're saying it that way, I agree. I think it started probably with the more scientific side of things. And then people probably work themselves up into having anxiety about it for other reasons. Well, yeah, that's what we do as humans. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we do. Zoloft for everyone. (laughs) That's what I said and I meant it. Uh, do you have anything else? No, that's all all the things I looked up. That this this was great. I learned more than I thought was possible to know about Uncanny Valley. All I knew was creepy face makes me feel creepy. Yeah. But now I know why, I think. It's so cool. It's really cool. I like it. Well, Ariana, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast on being a loyal club member. Um, And thank you for letting me record this on your bed in Philly. It's, it's been great. It's been different. You shoving I, my head into the microphone every two seconds. Literally this far away. Literally this whole time, Ariana will be going over to read her notes, and I'll just like <laughs> gently grab her entire body and just like position it back in front of them. It's straight microphone. up. It's straight up Snape pushing <laughs> Harry's head into the book <laughs> from Harry Potter. <laughs> That's how I feel. 
do it for the audio. Now I know how Daniel Radcliffe feels. <laughs> now you know how he feels. It all relates back to Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this week's episode. Um, stay spoopy, guys. Stay spoopy.